But right now we're going into our feature, which we call the autobiography. On a Friday evening, the last few weeks, we've spoken to Maria Rasmus, the cricket umpire. We spoke to Dane Clayt last week, who is our guest in studio, former Bafana Bafana International. And tonight, we have a fascinating guest to join us to talk about the sport of wheelchair tennis. It's a very, very good evening to our guest tonight, Patrick Selepe. Patrick, wonderful to have you on the show. So much to explore with you. Welcome and thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for having me, and thanks a lot to be here. Patrick, I want to start early on in your career. Before we get to the tennis side of things, you had a difficult childhood growing up. You lost your dad at a very young age. You had a, a lot of hardships to, to endure. And then culminating, of course, with the news that the big C, so to speak, had taken over and you were forced to have an amputation when you were still fairly young. And that, in a way, was probably a, a sad way to, to start your life, but you've made it into something extremely positive. Just tell us a little bit about your formative years and, and the challenges you've had to overcome. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, 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 very, it's very difficult in life whereby you're having a normal life like any kid, and then suddenly your life has to change uh, to something that you're not even have information about it or knowledge about it where you know from running suddenly you can't run anymore uh you can't do things how you used to do them and you know life just changed like that uh the main the main thing that i'll say made me come out of that uh losing my leg due to bone cancer mm -hmm. is the support you know you can have all the money in the world you can have the best medication that you need in life but you know to me the most thing that got me out of where i have i was it's uh it's a, it's a support you know your family support your friends support it, it's something that made me see that uh, there's future in in the new uh, challenge that i was uh, we talk a lot these days about mental strength and having the mental strength to get through all sorts of things like for example how people handled the pandemic recently and various other challenges. You've had a lot on your plate. You've mentioned the support that you've had from various people and how people have rallied around you, but you must have had incredible mental strength to have got through all the challenges that life threw at you at that early age. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was never... Uh, like I said, I wouldn't do it alone. Yes. Uh, if it wasn't for the, you know, schoolmates that I had at that time, the family that I had, you know. So not mainly to say personally I'm, I, I was strong. It's just that I managed to get out of everything because of, you know, people around me, you know, uh, giving positive energy and showing me, uh, you know, examples of other people that are worse than the situation that I was in. Mm -hmm. And that really gave me, like, you know, a thought to say, you know, there's life after this, and then I have to fight because I have all the support that I need. So that's one thing that made me come through. And then when you came through that, you were flicking through the channels one day, I believe, and you managed to watch Fanny Lombard, who's, of course, our South African Paralympic gold medalist, record holder in discus, in shot put, in javelin. You, you watched him on the screen. You thought, well, if he can have such success, I can also. And it inspired a whole lot of different thoughts in your mind and gave you belief that you could achieve something great in the sporting world. Just tell us about how, how your life changed from watching 
watching Fanny Lombard on television? No, you know, you know when, when, two, when people come to you and they don't have a challenge that you're having and they're talking to you, you just listen, but, you know, it comes and goes. But, you know, the first thing they're out of hospital and then you're watching TV and you see a big man breaking records. And by that time, I was like thin guy. And then I'm like, okay, cool. I think I can do better than the guy, you know. And that <laughs> guy was breaking records. And, yeah, but I didn't have uh, the, the right prosthetic like he did because by then he had all the sponsors that you can think of. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any sponsor. Then I couldn't do like your uh, break the record or do good in javelin and short put. But I chose the road of uh, doing high jump. Uh, I can, I could, I could just hop, hop, and then just jump, you know. And I, I didn't need that, you know, prosthetic to do that. Mm. Uh, and then for that, I, I had South African record at 1.52. And you know, it's all because of watching TV, seeing someone like me, uh, the disability, obviously. And then me taking that decision to say, you know what, I can do better. Uh, I think this is the new life that I'm going to take. And then it all started then. I want to ask you about high jump. Obviously, high jump for an athlete with just one leg must be really difficult because you need that elevation. You need to be able to get off the ground. As you say, you have to hop to under the bar and then give yourself mm-hmm. the elevation and the strength to be able to get over. So how did you develop the technique for being able to do that? I think I had the right people to introduce me as as it's been today, you know, working in development. I always believe that, you know, when you start teaching your child soccer or involving your child in any sporting code, uh, you should do it the proper way, you know, get a proper coaching, get qualified coaches so that they can give you the correct technique. So uh, I was lucky to have the correct technique and obviously uh, do the research in terms of the guys doing high jump in one leg. And then you find it that, you know, it's not all about running. You just need that momentum, but you need to do a jump at the right time and give the right technique, you know. And then, then you go back to to Kasi home and all the stuff, and then you tell the guys, guys, I can jump better than you. And they're like, no, no way. Speak one leg, you can't do that. I'm like, okay, I give you a challenge. Let's do it. And then the guys will jump like, you know, they're jumping like, you know, I don't know how they're jumping a fence or something. And then you just jump using your technique, and that's it like you get the respect through that. So the technique is, 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 is really important. So that's amazing. And as you say, you managed a South African record for high jump for people with disabilities, 1.52 meters, fantastic. But you also dabbled a little bit in wheelchair basketball as well. Tell us about that experience. Obviously there you, you would need a, a fair bit of upper body strength to be able to move those wheelchairs around. Yeah, um, you know, you know, the seasons for sports uh, and then, you know, athletics was something that I started with. And, you know, after the championships and then there's nothing, but basketball was throughout the year. And then I had to join basketball. I was not a good player. I won't lie to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's that uh, leadership skills and all the stuff that, you know, is within me. Then that's where I took a route of, you know what, maybe I can do coaching. Uh, because I, or manage the team or something like that, and then I end up being uh, my home province uh, coach, uh, Limpopo, where I had a team called Eden Crusaders, and then yeah, we we did very well uh, playing well basket with basketball, and then you know after basketball there's something because remember I was searching in terms of 
uh, what is it that I love about sports for people of disability, mm-hmm. and where can I settle very well and say, this is, this is my life, this is what I want. So I started with athletics, and then the next thing was uh, wheelchair basketball. I had to let go of wheelchair basketball because obviously I was not a good player. Right. And then, you know, it's a team event, it's organizing people with disability. There's so many challenges, especially when it's a team, because equipment is very expensive. Traveling with people with disability is expensive. You can name accommodation and all the stuff. So at the end, I had to stop uh, wheelchair basketball. We're going to get into the conversation in a moment about your tennis career, both as a player where you did extremely well on the world rankings and also in terms of coaching and management and various other things, which we'll get into in a little while. Just to let our listeners know that we're talking to Patrick Selepe, who is a former South African wheelchair tennis player and umpire and talking about a fascinating career that developed because of the fact that he had to have an amputation at a young age. He didn't let him get it, get, it didn't let it get him down. And he took the opportunity, grabbed the, the, uh, the opportunity by the scruff of the neck, so to speak, and made a career for himself. I can tell you the Stormers have gone 17-10 up against Benetton. It's still nil-nil in the match between Maritzburg United and Richards Bay. We'll be back to chat more with Patrick right after this. The Autobiography, paging through stories of your favorite athletes. So on our autobiography slot, we call it Against All Odds, a man who has defeated the odds that life threw at him to make a career for himself. We were talking about the fact that he dabbled initially in athletics and then in wheelchair basketball, but he's best known for his tennis exploits, both as a player and now umpire. Uh, Also, he's helped to establish various programs within the tennis world. Uh, Patrick Selepe, let's talk a little bit about your tennis career. Obviously, you said that wheelchair basketball you felt wasn't quite for you after you'd given it a a go. And so what lit the flame for you in terms of tennis? Why suddenly uh, wheelchair tennis? What what made you decide to take that up? Yeah, you know, being involved in uh, sports for people with disabilities and then you get uh, to know more other sporting code that you are not aware of. So for me... Uh, while I was busy with athletics and the basketball, uh, I got an invitation to to do the coaching for tennis. I started coaching. Uh, I started. I, I, invo- I got involved firstly with coaching into tennis, and then I did like a, a coaching uh, certificate for for able-bodied tennis because obviously there's no um, school or course for wheelchair tennis coaching. And then after that, having the old called the BTI, Beginner Tennis Instructor, then 2004, wheelchair tennis was introduced in South Africa. And then I was one or two of the few black people that started playing wheelchair tennis. I I remember my first passport, uh, my first uh, traveling uh, on a on a on a on a flight was to. Um, through KLM to 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 Netherlands, okay. I'll never forget that. Uh, you can imagine I never I never flew to Devon or anywhere, but my first flight was to Netherlands, wow. and then I I represented my country as a as a development player. And believe me, I've learned a lot from that tournament. And from there, it was just a goal after that tournament to say, you know what. I'm in love with wheelchair tennis mm. because I've never been overseas or compete overseas for any sporting code for any reason. 
but that was for me. That was the first reason for me to be overseas and and learn a lot through through the other players, from the other players. And just for people who don't know how wheelchair tennis works, it works very similarly to able-bodied tennis. The only thing is the ball's allowed to bounce twice, of course, when to give you a chance to get into position to hit the ball. But otherwise, you still need the same skills, uh, a lot of upper body strength. You need to be able to hit forehands and backhands. And for the serve, you still throw the ball up from your wheelchair position and serve it. The rules are pretty much the same. You managed to move up the rankings in both singles and doubles and, uh, and had a very, very credible world ranking in, in both singles and doubles in wheelchair tennis. Just tell us about your career, some of the big matches that you played, and how it all went for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, at that play, at that time we played against players like uh, Robin Amelan mm-hmm. uh, from Netherlands. I think he was uh, number one at that time. Your yes. uh, Jeremiah's uh, from France, and it was tough on the men's section. Even today, it's very it's very difficult. It's not it's not that easy. It's not that easy. So. It was it was great for me to to reach even top top hundred in the world, but uh, that was that was a great one for me. Uh, I enjoyed my singles and doubles uh, ranking and, and and competition at that moment. And then, of course, after after playing and doing your thing on the court, you moved into umpiring as well. So it seems like you've done pretty much everything, Patrick. You've you've made a career out of so many different sports. You were the first person, first living person with a disability to serve as a line umpire to Wimbledon qualifier. That must have been quite a, a unique and, and tremendous experience. Yeah, you know, in sports, I mean, uh, your future is not guaranteed as a player. I mean, you can be number one, but how long are you going to be number one? You know, aging and all the stuff coming together. So for me, I I got to you know as a as a player you get you get used to the chair empires, how they do their job and all the stuff, and then I I, I got in love with how the officials you know uh, do their job as an empires, and then you know being in charge, being on that chair, saying mm. out or in, <laughs> okay, I thought I'm a player here, I make decision, but these guys make decision. I'm a player, I thought I'm an important person, but those guys are very important because. You know, they they making everything, the rules and all the stuff. And then I was like, you know, I would, I would love to do that. And then it started slowly, you know, obviously starting your country. And then I got the national certificate. And then from there, I had to learn international-wise. And then I did that in 2011. And guess what? I failed. <laughs> I failed my international certificate 2011. And that is all about the rules right. of tennis. And when you are a player, you think you know the rules. But believe me, you start, you start learning the rules, you, believe, you, you find out that, you know what, I don't know the rules. And then 2015, I went back again and, you know, tried the, the exam and all the stuff. And that's when I passed. And then I got a white badge with an international certificate. And then, yeah, boom, I wanted to, to learn more about officiating internationally. And my first international officiating was uh, uh, Wimbledon uh, qualifiers. Yeah, first time on grass, first time with international officials doing their job. And I was proud being, you know, a South African, working among the international people that, you know, have been there forever. And, you know, realizing that we got all the basics. And then I came back respecting South Africa and the officials around because, you know, I, I, I am who I am because of learning from other officials locally. 
And I trust that the players in wheelchair tennis are a little bit more tolerant of the officials. You don't get the abuse that some of the umpires get from people like Nick Kyrgios or in the past, John McEnroe, people like that who can be very explosive on court. I trust that they respect you and give you the respect that you deserve. I, I won't say much. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a conflict of interest. <laughs> Even from player-wise and then, you know, and official-wise, but I can tell you uh, there's no there's no difference between everybody. Uh, it, it depends on individuals, right. how how they behave on court and all the stuff. You find players like Nikorias and then all the stuff, so okay. it depends on players. And and again, I mean, if, if a player did something, it's not like the players like that. You know, we wake up as a player and then we find that, ah, today's not a good day. Yeah, you take it out. The first person you're going to spend most of your time with is an empire. Right. Uh, yeah, I asked you that question very, very much tongue in cheek. I want to talk after this next break just a little bit about some of the awards that you've won and how you've inspired some of our other top players to, to manage to make a career for themselves in wheelchair tennis. We'll do that after this break. The Autobiography, painting through stories of your favorite athletes. Wrapping up our interview then with Patrick Selepe. Patrick, we've spoken about your career as a player and also as an umpire, but you also have inspired a lot of young people, particularly in South Africa, to to make a career for themselves. I think about somebody like KG Monjane, who has had a terrific career playing in at the highest level at Wimbledon and doing particularly well there and in other Grand Slams as well. Must give you great satisfaction to know that you have laid the platform for players such as these. Yeah, you know, I mean, in Africa, I would say we we number one uh, in terms of uh, participation, uh, in terms of what we have or what we're having in, in, in Africa. So, but believe me, that is not enough uh, because our players have to travel that long uh, to play tournaments and, and, you know, international ranking because... It's very expensive to be in Europe. Like now we're speaking, I have two players that are in Europe playing the tournament, mm -hmm. Japan Open, and it's very costly for them to be there. But if, I mean, in Africa we can have, you know, six international tournaments or nine international tournaments, we won't have a reason to travel to Europe, you know. And that's the wish that I wish we can, we can, we can have. And we will see more players, you know, because right now, uh, if 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 we 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 have to look after the players out of 500 players or 300 players we have in South Africa, you can only take 10 or five wow. to have international ranking because of the cost, you know. But that doesn't mean we don't have other players to to showcase or to give them that opportunity to play and have international ranking. But you know, like I said, the sport itself is very expensive. You spoke about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're still suffering. We're still recovering from that. And it's more difficult now. And then the only players we have that are playing international in South Africa, you can imagine it's only five players, and that is not enough. While we have more than 100 players that, you know, can, can, can go and compete internationally. Patrick, we need to wrap it up. I just want to mention to our listeners that you were the inaugural winner of the Uniglow Spirit Award in 2017. Uh, nowadays, you're working with, as you say, the Global Sports Mentoring Program and helping to make this the sport accessible to so many people. You've mentioned about the financial challenges. Hopefully, there are some listeners out there who might uh, want to assist or want to help in some way. That'll be fantastic. So much more to unpack with you. We'll have you back on the show sometime in the near future to talk more about what's happening in the 
the world of wheelchair tennis. But thank you so much for your time and continue inspiring. Continue to do what you're doing best because it seems if you've really got a good handle on it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Michael. We really appreciate the moment.